Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 26, Ladysmith Relieved and Buller Makes Film History. This week I thought we'd concentrate on the town of Ladysmith in Natal, which had been besieged by the Boers for over a hundred days by February 1900. It was also the town from which nearly 13,000 British troops had been unable to escape, hemmed in by a smaller force of 8,000 Boers. You'd imagine that this British force could have broken out, being significantly larger than their besiegers. But the Boers had dominated the battles of the Felt in both Natal and to the west around Kimberley for 16 weeks. At first they appeared ghostly, moving across the waves of brown grass on the undulating felt on their horses to disappear, only to reappear. In most battles up to now, the British hadn't even seen their enemy, and that was particularly true of the men and women holed up in Ladysmith. They'd endured constant shelling like their colleagues in Kimberley, as well as in the far northwest at the town of Mafeking. We'll deal at length with the battles around that town later, but of the three, Ladysmith was the worst by far in which to have been caught without a chance to escape. A little-known book called Music of the Guns by Henry John May features two unusual journals. One is by Frieda Schlossberg, a precocious schoolgirl in Pretoria who kept a daily diary during the Boer War, and the other was Dr. James Alexander Kay. If you followed these podcasts, you'll remember both as I've featured each as they've discussed their day-to-day lives, and Dr. K in particular, who started out as a medic aboard a whaling vessel that worked the Antarctic. He'd also been a doctor during the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, so was one of the more experienced medical experts in South Africa. In this podcast, we're going to draw on Dr. K for some of the descriptions of what took place inside Ladysmith. By early January, he has contracted dysentery himself and is in bed. That's after treating wounds and fevers, psychological imbalances and influenza, amongst other afflictions since October. He's worn out and his journal kept at Ntombi camp, along with the letters he sent to his wife, Alice, in Peter Maritzburg, are illuminating. Ntombi camp became infamous for what happened to the sick sent to this tented camp outside the main town of Ladysmith. One letter he penned to his love on the 7th of January describes in modest tones just how bad things were. My dearest Alice, I had to report sick a few days ago with dysentery and have been in bed several days. He then proceeds to describe the Wagon Hill and Caesar's camp outpost attacks by the Boers on that day, which had been repulsed, but not without significant casualties. Lord Ava was shot through the head, a mortal wound, and Colonel Dick Cunningham, V.C., was killed by a stray bullet. One of our most tragic losses was Captain Lafone of the Devons, who was killed while charging with his regiment. A more gallant officer never lived. He was badly wounded in the arm and the side nearly three months ago in Elanslachter, but steadfastly refused to go to hospital and continued to do duty with his regiment. The Clip River flows through Ladysmith, and downstream, a German engineer working with the Boers was attempting to dam the river. Ladysmith lies in a depression, and the strategy was to try and get the river to back up and then drown the town. Thousands of sandbags raised the water only around three feet, but even in the midst of a raining season, the town did not drown. Dr. K writes, They employ a small engine and trucks to bring the bags to the side of the dam, and our guns at Caesar's camp are continually firing at this engine, but never succeed in hitting it. The train dodges about with impunity along the curves of the line, half hidden by the bush. 
The reality is the idea was nuts, and eventually the Boers gave up trying to flood the town. Most of the civilians were living in holes along the bank of the Clip River, which flowed through the middle of Ladysmith. They spent most of their time here, and the Imperial Light Horse had built a large cavern under the banks of the river to protect their men as well as their horses. As we shall see, there was going to be a series of unfortunate events for the horses. By the 17th of January, Dr. K is incensed, as are the 13,000 men and women trapped in the town. Sir Redverse Buller has been promising to relieve Ladysmith since late October, and it's three months later, and he's failed to overcome a Boer force of 8,000, so our good doctor writes, Every day some helios, which of course are blinking messages sent by mirrors, putting off the day of relief, and so it goes on. Everyone is cursing Buller and hoping he is recalled. This is really interesting. On the other side of the together, Buller's men, who are fighting to reach Ladysmith, thought their general was a hero, whereas the people trapped in the town waiting for this British powerhouse were angry, critical and demotivated. By the 25th of January, Dr. K had recovered from his dysentery and overheard the Boers and Ladysmith talking. There were a few dozen prisoners, but they seemed to be getting better updates about what was happening 40 kilometres away across the Tugela River, better updates than the British in the town themselves. Dr. K writes, Many of them ask, why are the British so unprepared? Did they think they could beat us with 10,000 soldiers that came from India? They must have known we meant to fight. They also knew that after the war began, about the quantity of guns and ammunition we obtained through Delagoa Bay, that's modern-day Maputo in Mozambique, piano cases containing arms came in regularly. It was also true that the Boers had tried to convince the Basutu in Lesotho to rise up against the British. These people had successfully defended their mountain kingdom from both the Boers and the British for close to a century. Now the Boers were dangling a possible alliance. But, as Dr. K writes, The Boers, of all people, should have been alive to the results of a native uprising. South Africa would have been a shambles, and it's not unlikely that the white races would have been exterminated. And thus we hear the confused logic of a colonial in Africa. The African population were diverse as well, and were unable to form a cohesive force to throw off the yoke of oppression which was slowly surrounding their villages and rural landscapes. The black South Africans were fighting for both sides, as we now know. What is true is the Boers were working closely with the Basutus in Lesotho, the mountain kingdom to the west of Natal. These people had been impossible to subjugate. They had survived Shaka, after all, let alone the Boers and British through the 19th century. The Boers tried to convince the Basutu to join them, while the British were using Godfrey Langdon, who was fluent in Isisutu and had spent years living amongst the people to convince the Basutu to stay out of the conflict. And in the end, they actually decided to support the British. General George White was forced to make a momentous decision by the 30th of January. He was commander-in-chief of Ladysmith, and he was also going to convert the cavalry's horses into food. Up until then, the horses had also been fed corn or mealies, as they're known in South Africa. The mealies had been ground up to make what we know as mealy meal, a powdered form of corn, which is the staple diet of South Africans up to today. It was sheer lunacy feeding horses the mealy meal while men, women and children went hungry. It was equally sheer lunacy to keep the horses alive when there was no hope of a mobile escape. White's new policy meant that the million pounds of millies could be turned into men's rashes, along with most of the horses themselves. 
The cavalry officers were outraged, not so much as having to eat their horses, as at having to fight on foot like the common or garden soldier. The garrison munched its way through the new rations with a newfound enthusiasm. There was an ominous new food that made its way onto the menu. In the railway workshops, a certain Lieutenant McNulty of the Army Service Corps set up an ingenious factory to make equestrian bovril. Instead of using beef, he used horse, and then he called this monstrosity Superior Ladysmith Chevrolet. It featured a picture of a train with the phrase Iron Horse on the label and the ominous word Resurgum. You can picture what that meant. But despite its pungent odour, the men kept it down. General White was in a bit of a flat spin. Buller hadn't managed to break out and save him, so he knew that the new supply of horse meat and milly meal would run out soon, within a few weeks. So White ordered new rations, which surprised the men, as they believed the force a few kilometres away would be saving them before too long. White cut rations to one pound of horse meat, half a pound of biscuits or milly meal, one ounce of sugar and a sixteenth of an ounce of tea, which cast a gloom over the town. The men realised that the food was supposed to last at least another 40 days. That shocked them. But the real story of hell in Ladysmith lay in the death rate caused by disease. By January, typhoid and dysentery were killing up to 20 men a day in the Intombi camp, a stone's throw outside the town itself. Every day, hospital trains carrying white flags steamed out with new victims and steamed back empty. The men at Intombi camp were treated worse than dogs in many ways. They lay on sacks, and all that awaited was a mass grave. A long trench had been dug, and each day up to 20 corpses were deposited in these trenches while a little dirt and lime was sprinkled on them. A local man from Natal who was sent to this camp wrote, They sent me into a tent in the field hospital where there were 40 soldiers and nearly killed me outright. The hospital had been intended for 300, and there were 1,400 in it when I was there, and 15 nurses to look after them. Food and medicine were in short supply, and the sun came in the tent like a ball of fire. The place was a perfect hell on earth. By the 1st of February, Dr. K is writing that starvation is killing the people of the town. Men are dying here from actual starvation. One gets one's patience over dysentery and typhoid and then sees the poor fellows sink slowly because there is no food for them. It is awful to know that our soldiers are treated like this and it is all through mismanagement. In fact, there is no management at all and everyone is allowed in denouncing the RASC. Those responsible should be kicked out of the service. We are the victims of mistakes and arrogance. The last comment was probably the most profound of the entire war up to this point, and there it was, in a nutshell. Buller had moved 36 kilometres in 10 weeks. The townsfolk were highly aware of this. It seemed they were all going to die of starvation and disease, and their morale plunged. And it was at this point that the Boers sent 140 extra British prisoners back to the town, knowing that they could barely feed the besieged soldiers and that there would be extra miles and this was going to have a negative impact. The camaraderie had collapsed. Theft was now a major problem. Our good doctor writes, Whether danger and theft are associated or whether the concussion produced in the air by the bursting of powder, cordite and other explosive develops device is beyond my comprehension. But the motto of all is, tum meum est, or yours is mine. The doctor was no less guilty. 
A friend of hers dropped by, and then Dr. K discovered his matches were missing. Later, he says, I must confess that a few days later I stole from him a milk tin full of candle droppings, which had been collected for some time to make a candle. I procured a candle mould, and so had four or five hours reading at night for my nine matches. I think I scored. Not much old school honour left, as you can see. Even the doctor is stealing from his friend. However, it was the dishonourable way in which the British treated their own soldiers that formed part of an inquiry after the Anglo-Boer War. What had happened was Sir George White had allowed the sick to be transported to Ntombi, which was a kind of illness-holding camp. Men were suffering from typhoid and dysentery, and it was feared the entire town would contract these terrible afflictions. So they were transported to Ntombi where, as we've heard, they lay on sacks in the half-shade, with a tiny number of nurses trying to keep them alive. When a journalist in the town itself contracted typhoid, however, they were shuttled off to a Ladysmith hospital instead so that they couldn't see just how despicably bad conditions were at Ntombi. The man in overall charge of the sick was one Colonel Exum, the Principal Medical Officer, or PMO, Unfortunately for Exum, an extensive and detailed journal was kept by another medical orderly, Major Donigan, who was in charge of the 18th Field Hospital, which fully documents the charges of maltreatment. In January, he was told verbally by Exum to cut off all medical comforts to the sick men on the 18th Field Hospital, even the allowances of sago and arrowroot and brandy. Donigan protested and demanded the order in writing. Exum threatened him, saying, You will be removed from charge of your hospital if you ask for orders again. The reason why Exum suddenly ordered medicine slashed was ostensibly to show off to the relief column when it arrived that he had medicines and that he had protected the stores. However, he was not just boasting. This medical orderly was actually indulging in fraud. Exum was diverting medicines to his cronies in town, civilians who could sell these meds for a fortune. Donigan was close to a breakdown as he tried to keep soldiers alive, while his own commanding officer presided over corruption. And much to Sir George White's discredit, he never once visited the sick in hospital. This is criminal in its carelessness, as we'll see later, and despite General Redvers Buller's many faults, his first stop in the town was in Tommy Camp, once it was relieved. In Ladysmith, the civilians were also close to the end of their tether. A woman called Bella Craw was desperate after being cut off from family and the world. On the 28th of January, she wrote, I did an awful thing today, which I'm afraid I will many a time regret, and that is to have on my arm tattooed 1899 Ladysmith Pro Patria 1900. When demure Victorian women are pushed to tattooing their arms, you know things have slumped. Football matches and bagpipe playing had ceased as the entire population literally didn't have the breath or the legs anymore. Energy had to be conserved. And as with Kimberley, heroes of the hour emerged. One was the man in charge of food in Ladysmith, Colonel E.W.D. Ward. Every crisis seems to produce a man or woman of the moment, and this was no different. Ward's administration of the food supplies meant that the garrison managed to survive way past December, which is when the food was supposed to run out. 
And for the cavalry, the 10th of February was also the historic day when the first hundred of their mounts were selected for slaughter. As I've explained, the Chevrolet factory was constructed before the slaughter of the horses began, and the engine shed of the railway station which processed the less palatable cuts of horse meat turned it into soup and jelly and sausages. Cattle were being slaughtered and turned into biltong, or South Africa's version of beef jerky. What's known as Indian corn was collected for crushing and grinding, and dairy cows had been requisitioned to ensure a supply of milk for the wounded, but still 20 died a day. It was so bad that a Natal local volunteer had a brainwave, which unfortunately was to be his undoing. He began to organize duck hunts on the river, and for several days at dawn on the Clip River, he and his friends wandered up and down the stream and shot duck. This led to much merriment and happiness, and numerous duck recipes were concocted. That was until the Boers ambushed our intrepid duck hunter one morning, and that was that. No more duck hunter, and therefore no more duck. Another Ladysmith resident figured out that if he confused his chickens, they'd lay twice a day. So, after feeding in the morning, he confined them in a light-proof compartment, then released them later in the afternoon. They began to lay two eggs in 24 hours. All this ingenuity really just obfuscated the reality that by February 1900, Ladysmith was in deep trouble. In the distance, they could hear Sir Redvers Buller's artillery thumping away, and yet there was no sign of relief. Temperatures topped 36 degrees regularly, and dust hung in the air. Messages, though, could get in and out of Ladysmith, but it took a great deal of money. For example, a certain Mrs. Curry paid five pounds to have a letter sent to her husband wrapped in a silk handkerchief and concealed in a postman's mouth as he crawled and ran his way through the Boer lines. The sentries in the outlying trenches were suffering too. They began sleeping through the night as they had no energy and left bottles and tins along trails, hoping that if the Boers attacked, they'd trip over these things and wake up the less-than-vigilant British. Had the Boers realised just how weak their opponents were, they'd probably have attacked Ladysmith. But Louis Boerter and the other Boer leaders knew that the British would have fought to the death with their backs to the wall, and the casualty rate on both sides would have been enormous. So they both eyed each other from a distance, waiting for the inevitable day that Buller would break through. And that day finally came on the 28th of February, 1900, when from the town people suddenly watched the Boer retreat where a silver snake of wagons moved across the felt and the great gun on Bulwana Hill was being dismantled. At about 6pm on the evening of the 28th, Henry Neverson, who was a war correspondent in Ladysmith, wrote, I found all the world running for all they were worth to the lower end of the high street and shouting wildly. The cause was soon evident. Riding up just past the Anglican church came a squadron of mounted infantry. They were not our own. Their horses were much too good, and they looked strange. There was no mistake about it. They were the advance of the relief column. Captain Goff, who, as we've seen in previous podcasts, was particularly heroic and led the column into the town. Goff was taken to see General White, who was now grave-faced and stooping, a pathetic figure weakened by illness and walking with a cane. Also in the group entering the town was a certain Morning Post war correspondent, Winston Churchill. The relievers then opened their pockets and handed out chocolate and cigarettes and tobacco to both soldiers and civilians. One of the staff officers in the relief column broke down and wept as he saw the wretched, emaciated men standing in the street. Cheering. 
Dundonald, who'd fought most of the major engagement in Natal up to now, was also in the group and sent a message to Buller, which read, Am in Ladysmith, Dundonald. On the 3rd of March, Buller arrived and discovered the Boers had disappeared past Van Rienen's Pass, 40 kilometres away onto the high ground. Buller's first stop was in Tombi Hospital, where 500 had died. And for the first time in the world, the general entering a relieved city was filmed by a movie camera. Buller wrote to his family and said, As I passed each company of the garrison, they gave three cheers for Sir R.B. And in the middle, there was a photographer fiend with his cinematograph. So I suppose it will all be in the Alhambra or some other house of entertainment. So it's fitting that we end this week with an historic moment involving the reporting of war. For the use of these one-ton cameras in the Anglo-Boer War has morphed in the 21st century, where tiny drones film in high definition and fly for days. We must end here. Next week we'll follow Buller and Churchill and the others who eventually snapped the Boer lines at Peter's Hill with incredible tales of valour and chaos still to be told before the strategic Natal town was relieved and also probe some of the debates inside the Boer camp where many of the commandos disputed their leader's strategy. So join me then for episode 27 of the Anglo-Boer War. In the meantime, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and you can contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham. Goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud transval, daar waar my saar is.